I had a chance to learn more about following the numbers and how provider contracting was done. And it really bothers an accountant to be paying a price that is uh, unknown discount off of an arbitrary number. Welcome to Broken Benefits. I'm your host, Lee Lewis, and this is a podcast where we learn from top employer experts on how to fix our broken benefits. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Broken Benefits. I'm your host, Lee Lewis, and uh, thrilled today to introduce our guest, Marilyn Bartlett. Uh, she is one of the most kind of iconic leaders in healthcare and large employer benefits over the past few years. She was even named in 2019 by Fortune magazine as one of the world's greatest leaders. She was number 13, beating out even Apple's Tim Cook. While she was the head of benefits for the state of Montana, she put in place one of the most revolutionary strategies that has been used in the history of the industry. And it was an absolute first on many fronts for being used by an entire state. And today we get the chance to learn from her what we're doing now, what we can do better. And with that, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us, Marilyn. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here, Lee. Thanks. Perfect. So first, I want to start off, tell us a little bit about the story of what you did at Montana, both how you got the, you know, what was the impetus for the idea and then how did you deploy it? Certainly, I think being an accountant um, and coming from having worked as a controller at Blue Cross Blue Shield and a CFO at a regional TPA, I had a chance to learn more about following the numbers and how provider contracting was done. And it really bothers an accountant to be paying a price that is uh, unknown discount off of an arbitrary number. So I wanted to move to cost plus. And at that time in like 2014 timeframe, there was a lot of talk about uh, reference-based pricing. CalPERS had just done their work uh, tying their reimbursement rate on uh, bundles and shoppables to Medicare. Uh, so I started studying that a little bit more. So I was ready to retire but I was recruited to take over the state of Montana employee health plan as their administrator. And the plan was in serious financial uh, condition. It was projected to have minus 9 million in reserves in just two years if it wasn't turned around. So as I analyzed the costs, looked where the spend was and realized 43% of it was with the Montana hospitals and by far the bulk of it with the 11 acute care hospitals, I thought that's where we really needed to go. And fortunately for me, I terminated the contract with a large carrier. We found a TPA Allegiance Benefits who had been studying this similar method. And we became a good partnership. And we said, we're going to contract with every Montana hospital to reimburse as a multiple of Medicare. And we did it. Wow. Now, I imagine there was some pushback to this. Not everybody was excited for you to go this direction. What what was the kind of uh, resistance that you ran into and how did you overcome it? Yes. Well, it was interesting because um, uh, 
the legislature had passed Senate Bill 418, and the bill basically said pay raises were going to be limited for employees if we couldn't turn the health plan around. And they offered about eight things for us to look at. And you could tell when you read those eight things that they were placed there by industry, by insurance, and by hospitals. And so you could tell that it was definitely something that had come in from outside. And so we put in one line, the budget director put in one line that said, consider reference-based pricing. So I jettisoned over all the rest. So I had hospitals upset. I had insurance companies upset. Our big carrier here is a large carrier. And it basically says, we don't want your provider network. We don't want a price like you have. I had employees upset because they weren't going to get pay raises because of the health plan. And as we started rolling things out, uh, I realized that we had more opposition than we had support and that we needed to do something about that right away. So what we did was we thought, let's get the employee support first. So we had a marketing company help us put together videos. Uh, we worked with the union leadership and we were able to bring the employees in to understand what we were doing and to be able to move forward, which was helpful. I was to report to the, which I did report to the Senate Finance Committee every quarter in the interim, and I reported the governor's office monthly. So it wow. started as education, education, and uh, it it was just pulling together, and, and we had a lot of support. It turned out the governor's office was in total support of what we were doing. We were able to work with the legislature. We were able to um, kind of pull in that support. Now, every legislator has a hospital in their town, so they were getting lobbied really heavily too. And I remember at one point I showed a slide and I said, I know we can get 25 million out of this plan by the time you come back in session in 2017. So what do you wanna do? Do you wanna leave the 25 million in this dysfunctional health system? Or do you want the money back? And then I listed some of the priorities that I knew they had, such as uh -huh. how many people could be covered with Medicaid expansion, et cetera. So it was education and then a lot of constant updating and talk. Everyone now just a quick word from today's sponsor. Hey, Dad, have you seen my PlayStation? People who work for companies just like yours are desperate for any way to pay their medical debt. Support your employees by giving them 100% medical coverage with Catalyze Health. I love that so much. Basically, you, you made it what's in it for them. Mm -hmm. It's that we don't have unlimited financial reserves here if we're able to save 25 million here are all the things that you can reinvest in it's like okay that connects so that when they're <laughs> when they're getting lobbied they have something to anchor in on um one yes. thing that you brought up that i that i love is uh you know taking general accounting what you might have been doing in any other area of business and you applied it to healthcare 
Um, what, what other types of business practices that are just super common sense in every other area do you think are, are lacking within healthcare? Oh, thank you for asking that. Um, definitely cost plus or yeah. really analyzing the price you're paying, definitely cost plus. Contracting in other places, where do you sign contracts that you're gonna pay an amount, but if you want to know how the amount is calculated, it's proprietary and confidential and you can't see it. Where else do you sign a contract that says, um, if your member's going to have care out of state, that may be reimbursed at one of three rates. And any overpayment is retained by the vendor and uh, interest earned by them. Where do you ever sign something like that in another contract? Um, and where do you are you limited in who you can partner with for different parts of the benefit? The other thing is the kind of hidden money behind the scenes. Uh, if you are with a TPA and that TPA brings you a PBM or brings you a smart pharmacy saver program or uh, even let's say an HSA, you know, management, financial management, oh, here, partner with this, that they are paid substantially admin fees on top of your admin fees that it's not disclosed and you don't have a right to even figure it out. So I think there is so much transparency. The other thing with health benefits is there are so many middlemen and middlemen you don't even know about. Uh, so that launches the whole transparency into who you are paying what and who are all the players. Wow. There's going to be a lot of people listening to this who think, oh my gosh, I didn't even know all of those things, you know, might even be occurring. What are, if, if you were speaking to the audience that, you know, that, that are managing a health plan that are in, in this space or business executives who, you know, do have a health plan as well within their organizations, what are some of the mistakes that people are commonly making, whether intentional or just, you know, through ignorance? I'd say really signing contracts that put you in a position that you're not really able to do your fiduciary duty. Because one of the key roles of a fiduciary is to pay reasonable expenses, pay reasonable amounts for the benefits for the members. And make sure every penny is spent for the member's benefit. So you need to know where the money's going. You kind of have to figure that out. And in the contract, read it. If there are clauses in there that kind of make you think, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. You need to find it out. And I think you've got a lot of tools in your toolbox now more than when I was doing this because of the transparency movements. Look at the Consolidated Appropriations Act, the transparency clauses. You now have full right and responsibility to get your mm -hmm. data, all your data. And mm -hmm. you have to test that you do have that in all of your contracts with all your service providers. That's a PBM, that's a TPA, it's a wellness provider. You have that responsibility, mm. and even more so is the transparency clauses on consultants, brokers, uh, different service providers. 
you need to know and you have to attest that you have not entered a contract that limits your ability to find out the fees that they're collecting on your behalf. We were just working with mm -hmm. a, another employer who thought they were a 2,600 life group. They thought they were paying 250,000. But by the time mm -hmm. the letters went out and they were able to gather what commission was coming in on life insurance, short-term disability, PBM, different wellness programs, it's 591,000. You have a you have to know that because that's your plan assets because you can think, yeah. well, it's coming out of the premiums. Okay, it's coming out of your employee premiums for ancillary products. You really have that fiduciary role. So there are a lot of great things in your toolbox right now. And um, I think it's important to exercise them. How do we do that? So if I, you know, if I'm thinking to myself, well, hey, I ran an RFP where I got bids from all the major players and I compared all the pricing and my procurement team went to town on them with negotiations and we redlined the crud out of that contract with lots of smart attorneys. Um, but Marilyn, you're still telling me that I missed a bunch. Mm -hmm. What are, how do I, how do I get to a place of reasonable payments if I'm already performing all this diligence? Well, the interesting thing there in this, you know, it's to get into that claims data, get into the data and see what you're really paying. Find the names of the companies that are running through there that you're paying through the claim system. Maybe the wellness vendors running through there, maybe network fees running through there and ask for more information on those. Try to find out what is incorporated in that, you know, for me, of course, I am an accountant, is that yeah. get into the details. You have, have a perfect contract, so make sure everything's following the contract, but then really get into that detail. And if you have a vendor that's not willing to share that information to you, then you potentially have a problem. We're seeing more employers looking for maybe towards legal solutions to be able to get the data that they need. So we're finding that the whole environment's changing. And I think, I think the leader on this has to be employers. Mm -hmm. If I'm an employer, the legal stuff, obviously that, that raises everybody's, you know, hair, my, my hair is permanently raised. So it's a, you know, it, it, it's a hazard of, of my condition, but the, the concept of, okay, uh, there might be legal problems here or, or legal liability. What, you know, if, if there were to be lawsuits coming in this area, what do you think they would be anchoring in on? Like what, what's the, what's the, uh, the lowest hanging fruit there or the biggest risk that we might be sitting on and not know it? Well, I think there's two things that I'm seeing out happening out there now. One is um, compliance with contract. Um, were claims paid according to the contract? Uh, were recoveries sought out when they should be? When you have a clause in your TPA contract and the TPA basically, most of them will say the TPA has the uh, ability, they have the authority to choose which recoveries they will pursue. So two things wrong with that. One is, um, Dig into the data. Are they seeking recoveries on only certain providers, but not others? Mm 
The other thing is you just gave up a fiduciary role. You just said the ability to recover lies with the TPA, not you. So the two things we're seeing out there happening now is compliance to the contract, looking and seeing if the if there are some strange things there. But the second thing is on fiduciary role. Are there things going on with that TPA or even in that contract where you're not able to pre- to perform your fiduciary role because of contract terms, or is the TPA assuming the fiduciary role and making those decisions? And those have been kind of gray areas, but they're worth, uh, that's what we're seeing kind of out in the marketplace happening now. Couldn't I just delegate to my TPA to be the fiduciary? I mean, it kind of says that in the contract that they have a fiduciary you know, activity or a fiduciary service they play around appeals and determining what claims to pay. Isn't that sufficient? Haven't I sort of offset my my risk there? You really can't contract out your fiduciary role. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting because this is in ERISA plans. And I was in charge of a non-federal government health plan that doesn't fall under ERISA, mm-hmm. falls under the Public Health Act. And so the rules weren't quite as clear, but it was very clear that uh, there was still the fiduciary role. And in the, I would argue in a public program, you have a double obligation. You are a fiduciary Mm -hmm. because you have member money in that plan that you are spending. And you also may have trust laws if you're in a trust. The other thing is you are a steward of taxpayer dollars. Mm. And so while some of these don't have concrete little nitty gritty, you have to do this and that. I think you take the high ground and you use that as the fundamental basis for how you, how you perform. Wow. So thinking about the risk, we've then delegated sort of authority to the carrier, but we haven't delegated the risk. Is that, am I thinking about that right? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. You haven't delegated the risk because you're going to be paying I'm it on the hook. risk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're responsible to your plan members. So I'm responsible. I'm at risk. I have the liability but I've delegated all the authority to make decisions on my behalf to somebody else, but I'm responsible for those. And then I'm not, I don't have great transparency into what's going on there. And I don't even have authority over it. Is that the situation, sort of the, the necktie we're, we're making for ourselves? That is very well said. That's exactly right. As that plan sponsor, if you can't even get the data, or see the contracts that you have been, you know, a party to without you really kind of knowing it. Yeah, you're right. Wow. How do we sort of speaking more broadly? So now you've got me very energized. So I'm, I'm a leader of a health plan. You just told me, okay, in spite of all my RFPs and everything like that and, and procurement and redlining, there's still, stuff going on that, that creates risk for me. And, and the way that I can tackle that is by looking into the claims themselves. It's not going to be in the spreadsheet during the RFP. It's not in the contract red lines necessarily, although it's possible that some stuff flip by, 
but I need to actually get into the actual dollars I'm spending and with my, you know, weekly, monthly check registries, things like that. Once I've started doing that, I'm looking to, to close or at least to ask questions. That seems like a really good place to start, as you mentioned, is look for things that don't make sense and ask lots of questions. And just getting started on that probably leads us down a road. What are ways that I can start to go on offense and use my plan design to start making a difference, you know, in the industry and, and be able to create more sustainability and protection for my plan members? In plan design, that's really, really a good question. Of course, we're seeing a lot of tiered networks. Um, I would look at the possibility okay. of doing some contracting. Do you, even if you're a national employer, do you have pockets of employees in certain places? Can you do any direct contracting uh, with a facility, with a direct primary care uh, group? Is there a way that you can remove that middleman, that middle player, and do direct contracting? Some are finding they can do it through purchasing alliances, that the purchasing alliance holds that contract and enforce that it be very transparent that you can follow. I mm -hmm. think that as you start digging, you're going to start not understanding certain claims and asking questions of the TPA. One of the things that is a tough one is in most of the large uh, TPAs, the large carriers, the money is held in a carrier-owned bank account. So they will tell you what your claims run is or how much you have to fund, or you may be on level funding or pre-funding, and you transfer the money into the account. So there isn't a way for you to really tie to what was paid to that provider. I have a claims run. I see what it says was paid. Is that truly the amount that the check was cut or the ACH was cut. And you really kind of don't have that. So I think I would push to get some ability to see that because um, there could be spread pricing, just like we see in pharmacy, that the provider paid less than the plan paid. There does exist in medical. So you can start as, you know, make it's it's tough. Maybe it was fun for me as an accountant, but it's not going to be fun for most people to really get into the detail and really follow that money and ask the questions so that you understand. And if you see in your contract, we are disclosing we have financial interest in the uh, network, but we will not share with you what that financial interest is. Maybe go ahead and find out what that means. Hmm. Ask lots that of questions. Like, that seems like that wouldn't be a good clause to get read while you're on the stand defending your, your upholding of fiduciary duty, I would guess, right? I mean, am I thinking about that right? This is the kind of stuff, yeah. this would all be discoverable if there were ever a lawsuit or something, mm -hmm. and it's written right there. I mean, if it plays out like that in practice, that's one thing, but if it's actually written into the contract, you know, I hereby absolve my rights to know what's going on financially within a plan. That seems like a dangerous position. Certainly, that seems like something that would be dangerous to have in writing in a contract that you sign. I think it is. I and think. I think that employers are going to be held more and more accountable for that. And it's been an area 
where uh, especially a large carrier will say, take it or leave it. You sign this contract, you don't have, you know, employers have been stuck on that with network adequacy laws, with they the wow. benefit of wanting to provide to their members. And so to me, the contract is the place to start and digging into the data and you will uncover a lot. And then uh, I think transparency is the first step. Start asking questions, looking through, and then uh, and then sort of build from there. Mm-hmm. What um, what do you think is a uh, I don't know. I guess if if I'm looking at it from a fearful standpoint of I'm worried that the that my carrier will will just say no or will say take it or leave it. What? What recourse do I have? Because I think that could be kind of scary for some people, right? That could make people a little bit anxious. Yeah, that really is scary. I know when I put out the RFP to do the plan that we wanted, I had nine respondents, but only one would do what we wanted. Just one. Wow. And I was a little worried. (laughs) But I think there are more and more players coming along that will do the transparent benefit, even on the medical side. They're still limited somewhat in the provider contracting and the network contracting, but getting into those direct contracts and consultants that will help you do that, mm. uh, I think will help. It is scary. And I, and, I, and I feel sorry for employers and benefit plans that are stuck in this because it has been really a whole market of what you're saying, take it or leave it. But I would keep pushing. There are some players out there that uh, will bubble to the top. That's great to hear. Now, I'm I'm putting myself in your shoes. You sent out the RF, uh, I guess an RFP, and nine people responded, and eight of them said pound sand, and one of them said, sure. And it was like, you know, have I gone too far, asked for too much? Because the market seems to be saying that I'm, you know, I'm the weirdo, not all of them, right? Because certainly eight of the nine seem to be kind of in in solidarity. How did you sort of, how did you feel and how did you press forward from there? Um, Well, I was a little worried, to be honest with you, and I thought we have taken this so far, but I really trusted the TPA, the TPA that we were going to work with, the president, the CEO. They are based in Montana. I knew them, and Mm. I had seen a lot of the data analysis they had done on what Medicare pricing would look like in their mind, Um, and we had already talked, we had already shared what we wanted very, very clearly. And they were able to respond. They could do it contractually. And I thought, you know, we're going to roll up our sleeves. We're going to support 100% of the way, and we are going to do this. Um, I think we never took, we never took our eyes off that goal, no matter how we kept getting pushed, because you can bet those other eight made a beeline right away for the governor and legislators, even the attorney general. What we were doing was going to bankrupt the state. Oh we my. Had fires to put out. But I think I knew mathematically or accounting wise, right. we, it made sense. And uh, I had the right. 
So if I'm thinking about this right, you even though you had eight of the nine that weren't, you know, that weren't on board, you only needed one. Is I mean, is that right? You got that one and then partnered with them carefully? You need that one player that's going to do it with you. And you know, one of the things I thought about was that was a real risk for that one TPA to come forth. Because here they are in Montana. They have business all across the country, though. But right. they were going to be, they have standard contracts, standard PPO contracts in Montana. And they were going to be working with us on this other model. So they were taking a risk, too. What would those other carriers drive to maybe get better rates on their PPO because this, this TPA had PPO contracts too. So you realized you were putting them at risk too. Wow. But they, and we had a very good contract with them. Not very big. The contract's really small. Oh, really? You know, yeah. I look at some of these other contracts I'm working with now and they're huge. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know what small is, but you know, it's not uncommon to see 70 to 100 pages. Yeah, I think this might have been 20 or 25. It was really pretty clear and laid it out there and did just fine. Now, I'm curious, when you released the RFP, did you put in it the contract language that you were actually using? Or was it more like, hey, these are the terms that are required to do business with us because this is what we're about? Well, it was kind of interesting because at that time, I didn't want to call it reference-based pricing because reference-based pricing nationwide had kind of a little bit of a scare in it because mm. the standard reference-based pricing is not contracted. So you pay right. an amount and then the member could be balance billed. Well, we right, didn't want weren't doing that. No, right. we wanted contracts. We didn't want members balance billed. So we knew we'd have to pay a little bit higher rate to be able right. to be and members not balance built. You know, I forgot the question. Yeah. No, is the um, sort of in getting oh. the, the contract provisions, did you, did you sort of spell it all out or was it just kind of the high level items in the RFP? Yes. What we did in the RFP was this, this is interesting now here. What, what are we like seven, eight years later? We right. called it transparent pricing. So okay. our move was transparent pricing and we defined what that would be is reimbursing as a multiple of, well, off of a reference. And if they could come up with another reference, fine, but it had to be a public reference and we suggested okay. Medicare and we suggested how we defined it. But we wanted to leave ourselves open in case somebody had a better idea. So we said, these are the things we want. If you have something other than this model, let us know. So um, one carrier came forth and they said, um, we can get you close to those rates that you want as a multiple of Medicare, but we're doing discounted charges. Well, we didn't want that because we wanted it secured with the increases. Um, right. Some came up with um, the other models of uh, doing a partnership with a vendor that does do the true reference-based pricing and the member could be balanced, billed, and then they give legal support. And we, we did not want that just because of right. the type plan it was. So 
they came back, a uh, couple said, uh, there is no way you can get better pricing than we've got. You've got to use our PPO network. And, and it was unbelievable. So once we did sign on, the contract was pretty simple. We knew what they brought to the table was exactly what we wanted. So we spelled that out, including we wanted the claims repriced at Medicare by an independent repricer. I did okay. not want the TPA to reprice it and pay it. That's like having the monkeys take care of the bananas. You just yeah. don't do that, you know? <laughs> you definitely have an independent reprice it. So I, I get a little frustrated with some plans that I've been working with. They say, oh, we're doing really well. We had our TPA reprice our claims as a multiple of Medicare, and we're doing really well. You got to get somebody outside of that realm. So we wow. were in line with everything we wanted, and it just went into place. And the contract went pretty fast, and we hit the road because we didn't have a lot of time. Wow. Okay, so now I have, like, a, a bunch of questions. One of them is, did you... Well, we've been discussing here is sort of an RFP out for administration to pay claims at a percent of Medicare. But as you've already explained, you already had agreements with the hospitals to take those prices, right? Well, contracts with them, or was that something you still? That seems like a chicken and an egg dilemma. It was, and this is what was interesting was I was proceeding and throwing this idea out and had talked to a couple of hospitals and the budget director and my department of administration director, we had been working that path and then quickly found out that we could not direct contract with hospitals. State procurement rules no. allow me to direct contract and we tried to get around them but the procurement department is no, 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 you can't. And so we thought, well, what are we going to do? Yeah. Because we were already out there. So what we did was we had to negotiate an amendment to the TPA's PPO network contracts. And the amendment would apply just to the state of Montana employee health plan that oh. they paid at these other rates. So they were amendments to that with the thought being of Montana legislature pass some laws to change procurement rules so that the state health plan can direct contract. Now that hasn't been done yet, uh, although there have been attempts. So I'm hoping this next, next legislative session, maybe that will come back up. Wow, so you went to these, uh, you went to these hospitals, told them how much you were willing to pay the hospital came forward and said, okay, we'll accept that. But then you couldn't sign a contract with them. So you went back to the PPO and said, hey, just for us, adjust your contract to pay this amount. And we were really fortunate with this TPA. They were hand in hand with us the whole way, working on the data analysis at the table with us, did the amendments and were ready to go. And all of them are different. All the contracts wow. are different. We ran our claims through a Medicare repricer independent. So we saw okay. what we were paying as a multiple of Medicare, inpatient, outpatient, specific procedures, physician. Okay. And then I, on the other hand, 
was working with the Medicare cost reports to trying to get data to be able to discuss with the hospitals. I needed to know because the first one we went to said, you have to pay because we're losing 40% on Medicaid. So I had to know, is that true? And secondly, you may be losing 40% on Medicaid, but is it 9% of your payer mix or is it 50% of your payer mix? Because that is right. a different story. And on this particular right. case- if that's with- all your patients, then you're, you're bleeding cash. But if it's a tiny minority, then nobody's, nobody's crying over you. So I built a little tool in Excel so that we could do that, that we could take the numbers from the Medicare cost report and I could see what they were losing or gaining on Medicare, Medicaid, and I could calculate a break-even point. Okay, I know that I am paying you 523% on Medicare Mm. and I have calculated your break-even at 240, say. Wow. So- we we the tpa was great in and it fit right to an accountant's mentality we decided our whole approach is going to be data driven okay. it's not going to be emotional it's not going to be rhetoric it is going to be data driven so there were times when we would sit down with a hospital executive pool team and they would be talking oh you know we get Uh, We have to do so much community benefit. We have to, and we'd say, let's get to your numbers. Your charity care is less than 1% of your operating expense. Your bad debt and uninsured is 2%. And this is what it equates, even if we cover that, to do break even. So we did totally data-driven approach. And that's hard to poke holes in. Wow. Yeah, no, I wouldn't want to argue with that if that if the that was the statistics that I had. Now, did you go out then very first to the hospitals and say, this is what we want to do? Or did you go to hospitals like one at a time and say, Hey, hospital A, this is what we want to do. Are you, are you in? And then kind of go to the second and third. How did you approach that? Cause it seems like that there's, that, that, that could be high risk for somebody trying to move in this direction. Really is well. We had the data by then. We knew what we were paying as a multiple of Medicare. We knew a range that seemed reasonable, and we okay. also had quality metrics. And I have to credit the TPA with a lot of that. So what we did was look at two of the hospitals that had really high quality, high utilization, and were already really in that range. So really, it was getting them to buy into the methodology. And both of them signed on pretty, one signed on right away, one, it took a little bit of work, but they helped us kind of develop the program. And then we were able to say, okay, we have two hospitals signed on right now, and they are efficient because look at their, their costs look at their Medicare cost report break-even points, look at their profitability, we could say, and their quality. So we started calling them the efficient hospitals. And is there a way the rest of you could come down to this efficient range? And uh, that became our talking point. The independent hospitals came on sooner, except for one. One waited till the very end. It was the system hospitals that didn't come on till the last month. We said wow. we're live July 1. If you're not in, we have a travel benefit. And uh, the two system hospitals did come in. 
Wow. Wow. And so that was sort of spread out to the hospitals and it was sort of open for them to opt into it. And yes. then separately you were running the RFP for the administration, which was getting everybody paid and, and administering the plan design. Mm -hmm. If you don't know anything about direct contracting, how do you, how do you, where do you even start on that? That's a really good question. I think you start, there are a lot of consultants out there now doing that. Uh, mm. Okay. I think really, you know, I would do a RFP for consulting services, but I would really make sure that they're not compromised, but I would look for experience in direct contracting. There are law firms that are doing it. Yeah. Um, I think some of the organizations that your benefit managers may belong to have some connections that you can get examples of contracts. You can do vetting. You can talk to your uh, colleagues in other areas and, and get some good leads on that of what should be in direct contracting. Oh, that's awesome. How about on pharmacy? Is there any low hanging fruit that we should, that we should go after in pharmacy? Wow, is there ever in pharmacy? Definitely. Um, what we're seeing a lot of right now are a lot of people moving to these um, copay and drug manufacturer cards and some of these different mm -hmm. foundation programs that are in place to kind of get that cost down. Right. I think um, the days of chasing rebates are over. Uh, okay. I, I really think that getting a solid formulary and always go to lowest net cost. Quit chasing rebates. And I say that mm. to Medicaid programs is quit chasing those because um, we recently did an analysis for a particular program and a really a brand drug that was in a very good position on the formulary. We boiled it down to the pill level. And this particular pill was $7.75 per the pill. And the uh, plan was saying, yes, but we get such a great rebate. And we said, well, what's your rebate? Well, we don't know because that can't be shared with us. The PBM can't tell us the rebate on that drug. And we said, but the generic is three cents. So drive to lowest net cost, drive to a formulary that makes sense. Um, I think uh, shining the light on that makes a lot. Now I did change out. We terminated our PBM and uh, went with a transparent pass-through. And first year saved 23% on RX. Oh, now, oh, I have, a, I, have a, I have a theory on this. And that is that transparent pass-through PBMs never win RFPs, but always right. succeed in saving money. Did you experience that? Absolutely, absolutely. And the ability of some of the big name consultants in pharmacy, analysis firms, I won't name them, they don't know how to examine a transparent pass-through. They don't. Their models are all set up on rebates and all these other formulary things. They do not know how to analyze a transparent pass-through. How much now, did they tell you you were going to lose before you said, bah, hogwash, and you went for it anyway? Well, what happened was we had a very large uh, consulting firm and I asked mm -hmm. them to dig in our current pharmacy benefit. And I knew enough just from where I had been working about 
the games that are being played. And this one particular one had like, I think it was five to seven different contracts. So there was a contract with the rebate aggregator, contract with specialty, a contract with all these different players. And I knew just from my history that we weren't getting lowest net cost, even on brand, we were not getting right. that. And right. so I asked our large consulting firm to do an analysis for me on pharmacy. And they came back and said, well, it's going to cost you $25,000. And then they came back and they compared us to one other employer plan in Michigan or somewhere and said, no, you're pretty much in the market. Well, I terminated that contract and didn't pay the $25,000, dug into the contracts myself. And we did an RFP for a transparent pass-through and we did have a couple of different entities analyze it. But even then, the analysis doesn't come back to answer the questions on transparent. They don't understand it, and they're not set up to do that. They're not so set up for it. They don't know how to I'm glad to say that. I, you know, I'm glad to hear you say that because I could not understand that. I, I was just shocked. It's like running an RFP to buy a new fleet of vehicles. And one of the key, key things that you look at is how many miles do you get per gallon? And then you try to bid with electric. <laughs> and the whole system will break down if you're trying to measure miles per gallon on an electric purchase, right? Because it's just different. And it's you just can't totally measure different. it like that. Absolutely. And, and you can't use your established computer model to analyze it. Thank you for saying that. It's a different world. It just doesn't work. Yeah. So that's why, that's why I've, I've never seen <laughs> the two things I know is I've never seen a pass through PBM win an RFP that was, you know, that was done by a regular kind of consulting RFP. And, and then second, I've never seen one fail to save money. <laughs> when, when you, when you uh, sort of revolt against the RFP recommendation, and and make the uh, and make the direct and and then make the purchase for the transparent one. It's uh, uh, it always saves money, even though there's never been an RFP that said that it would. Anyway, and that's I'm sure right. that's broad strokes, and I'll, I'll get lots of people leaving comments to me afterwards. But that's been my experience. So it's true. Well, I this has just been delightful. Thank you so much for your time today. Hey, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to to reach out to you? I don't know. LinkedIn or website or email? Or... I'm not on any social media anymore and I'm not on LinkedIn okay. anymore. Okay. So I've kind of, uh, um, I, embarrassingly, it's through my email. Okay. And that is. If you is, want to share that, you can. If you don't want to share it, that's okay too. No, I can. It's okay. M Bartlett, B A R T L E T T, zero three. Okay. At msn.com. So yeah, you're right, folks. I've had that email for address for probably 25 years. It's an old holdover, okay? Um, yeah, and if I can't answer it, I'll sure try to route somebody to someone who can. Yeah, no, no problem at all. This has been delightful. Thank you so much, really, for joining us. Um, and then speaking to everybody listening, hey, if you enjoyed this as much as uh, you know, certainly as much as I did and got some value out of this, please feel free to share this episode. And uh, until next time on Broken Benefits, please 
uh, continue taking action. Let's save some lives and save some dollars. Take care. Thanks for joining us on Broken Benefits. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, please share today's show with a friend or colleague. It's free to do, and it helps us spread the message to as many people as possible. Until next time.